what you think about your situation, complication, aggravation, is it getting to you? Then tune in live every Sunday from 12 to 2 p.m. to the edge of insanity with myself, Paul Brumbaugh, Kit Marie, Brandon Ray, and Mistress Christine. All on Mutiny Radio. That's right, PCRcollective.org. We'll see you there. Welcome to the Weekly Review. I have two guests here who have joined me. Please introduce yourselves. My name is Lenora Lee. most beautiful love songs that's ever been written and we'd like to do it especially for all of y'all it goes like this do that again that's pretty so well a hard-headed woman a soft-hearted man been a causing trouble ever since the world began but i'm just oh yeah ever since the world began oh yeah well a hard-headed woman is a thorn in the side of a mind they burn love y'all Welcome. Adam said to Eve, listen here to me. Don't you let me catch you messing around that apple tree, but don't you? Oh, yeah, ever since the world began. A hard-headed woman is a bone in the side of a man. You bet you,
Good morning, mutineers. Labor and Love Radio. We just played a couple of opening songs for you. First, we started out with Wanda Jackson. Something to wake us all up, huh? Hard-headed woman, soft-hearted man by uh, the great Wanda Jackson. And then um, Ariana Grande with her song Break Free, which was likened by Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez as a song about breaking free of student debt. Of course, Ms. Grande was talking about a relationship, a woman who realizes herself and becomes who she is and uh, decides to leave her relationship. This is The Bee, and it's Labor and Love Radio, and we're coming to you as we do every Saturday morning from 10 to 12 on Mutiny Radio. Mutiny Radio, place where you can come, right here in the Mission District, just down the street. A community arts center like no other. We have uh, art installations. We have uh, sort of the capital of the underground comedy scene here in San Francisco. Thanks to uh, Pam Benjamin, our station manager and comedian extraordinaire. Uh, We have a radio station, as you probably know, since you're listening right now. MutinyRadio.fm. There's a lot going on here. Come on down to Mutiny and discover yourself. Find your voice. I'm the B, and my show is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table the negotiating table, that is, where you work. You're on the menu. Somebody is sitting down and deciding what your life, a major part of your life, is going to look like. And finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Okay, let's see. I'm trying to play some uh, Nina Simone here for us. And not having much luck. Um, Just stop that. What have we got for you today on Labor and Love Radio? Well, the GM strike has been settled. Who gained, who lost, how much? Who gained more? Who lost more? We'll talk about that. We'll have our Decoded feature on with Francesca Ramsey. And Francesca, Francesca going to talk about what's happening, why, <coughs> why light-skinned people get treated different from dark-skinned. Um, 
Hispanic workers walk off the job. I'd love to play that one. Let's play that one right now. Two lies. This is a scene and a fact. Hey, one for all and all for one. This is exactly what they mean right here. Everybody need to take notes on this and just know that it looks so much better when you're sticking together. Amigos, get about this motherfucker. Y'all got him fucked up. <laughs> Look at him. They sent a couple of them home. They all packed their shit up and shut this motherfucker down. Nigga, who y'all think y'all playing with? Mexico, man, this is what black people need to be on, man. I swear to God, I love this shit. They are packing they shit up and shutting this motherfucker, huh? Uh, on my mama, all that shit. <laughs> they are not bullshitting. They packed up. Yeah, I see, it's over. Them motherfuckers now packed up and dipped. They thought they was going to play with these amigos, and they said, oh, yeah, we rise together, homie. And they leaving, and they not bullshitting. Take this in, man, look at this, man. They shut this big motherfucker down today, man. We all going home, man. The SAs, look, ain't no grinding, cutting, welding. This is motherfucker dead ass quiet. The Mexicans shut this motherfucker down, nigga. Said, fuck you, bitch. And really, and really, see, this is what I'm talking about, baby. I swear to God, they got me here geeked up. Oh, my Malcolm back shit. Oh, my mama, nigga. Fuck the bullshit, nigga. Look at this. They shut this bitch down. They pissed them off, nigga. And they said, fuck you, we out. We not working no more today. Kiss my ass, nigga. I'll let y'all tomorrow. Oh, my mama. That's great. Look. Ain't nobody here. We're just cleaning up. We're going home. It's over, bro. Right with the essays, nigga. Fuck it. Go to the crib. Go to the. Go to the casa. Hasta la luego, man. Muy bien. You swear to God, these motherfuckers want to play it. You want to get live? Okay, let's let's give this a little context. This was um, um, a satellite of Amazon in. Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, the Mexican workers had been complaining about the way they were being treated by a couple of the management-level people. And uh, they went and complained. They elected a couple of delegates to go and complain. And uh, the delegates and a few others were fired. And so... In this case, workers got together and walked off the job. And this guy who was filming them was uh, very impressed, to say the least. <laughs> okay, the GM strike now. That's, uh, that's first and foremost, because what happened was, first of all, let's... Let's say the fact that the United Auto Workers could even get together a strike and maintain it for over a month and come out of it still standing, that in itself is a main, is a main point. But let's read here. This is from uh, CNBC. 
GM struck a deal that pays a mix of one-time bonuses to union members as the company pushed to close four U.S. facilities. Remember Mr. Trump talking about how these big companies were going to stay in the U.S. now? He was going to make sure that happened. Well, here are four more plants that closed. The GM contract doesn't significantly increase its recurring fixed cost. Ford and Fiat Chrysler, which aren't expected to try and close any assembly plants, may push to lower costs elsewhere to better align the economics of their deals. The approval of a new four-year contract between the United Auto Workers and General Motors on Friday ended a 40-day strike against the automaker, but the union's battles are far from over. The UAW will use the GM deal as a pattern for negotiations with Ford and Fiat Chrysler. However, there are no guarantees that the wins and losses from the talks with GM will carry over to its crosstown rivals. GM struck a cash-rich deal that pays a mix of one-time bonuses to union members as the company pushed to close four U.S. facilities and maintain operational flexibility without significantly, significantly increasing its recurring fixed costs. Kristen Disnick, Vice President of Research, Labor and Economics at the Center for Automotive Research, who knows where she's coming from, said regarding the GM deal, but there are also companies that have been doing fairly well. This was one of the points that the strikers made, that because of a lot of givebacks and a lot of uh, uh, surrenders on the part of the union and the workers, GM was now in the black, solidly was making large, large profits. If anyone thought they were going to have lower labor costs, they were mistaken. Major issues such as health care costs and pay traditionally are the same across companies. Under GM's deal, out-of-pocket health care costs remain unchanged at roughly 3% for workers Employees receive lump sum bonuses or raises each year of the deal. And a record $11,000 ratification bonus. Something that isn't expected to be repeated at Ford or Fiat Chrysler. Now that's only some of the workers. Okay. Only some of the workers get that. The full-time workers with a certain amount of seniority. While the big three Detroit automakers have recorded significant protests and profits in recent years, they are each in different positions when it comes to employment. Fiat Chrysler is building a new assembly plant in Detroit and adding thousands of jobs instead of trying to close operations like GM. 
at the Italian-American company's unionized workforce of 47,000 has the highest percentage of newer or in-progression employees and temporary workers. The company, according to analysts, may push back on GM's commitment to ensure all in-progression workers achieve top pay in the next four years. So Fiat, Chrysler, and Ford heading into talks. Ford's negotiations were expected to go smoother than its crosstown rivals. However, the company is expected to try and address issues surrounding health care costs and underutilized capacity at its U.S. powertrain plants. Okay, so GM, you know, has been a uh, a significant win just to survive and get through it. Didn't gain. Sounds like it didn't gain that much. Uh, but they stood up for forty days. They went out and they stood up. So that in itself is a victory. All right, let's see. Uh, Ikea workers. We'll have one more with Ikea workers, then we'll go to our radio labor. Ikea workers say yes to union. This is on the Labor 411 website. Workers at Ikea distribution centers in Joliet and Minooka in Illinois have voted to unionize the International Association of Machinists and aerospace workers, part of a global campaign targeting the furniture retailer. The union, known as IAM, has said it has won the right to bargain for 186 employees at the two locations. IAM organizer Dennis Mendenhall said workers voted 8376 to join the union and ballots cast Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday and Thursday. And then Hall said the union already has contracts at IKEA facilities in four other states. Workers there urged those in Illinois to affiliate with the union, he said. Wages and benefits are always on people's minds, but this was more about having a real voice on the job and a level playing field, Mendenhall said. He said IKEA is moving workers from Manuka to Joliet and that many workers felt mistreated by the process. An IKEA spokesperson said in an email, we believe the choice to be represented by a union lies solely with the co-worker and we respect the decision made by the co-worker in our Joliet and Minuka distribution centers. So IKEA goes. That's also good news. That's also very good news. Let's start now with radio labor. Um, oh, just a little story about the auto workers at one point Walter Ruther, one of the uh, leaders of the United Auto Workers, 
was touring an automated plant or part of an automated plant where robots were doing most of the work. And the UN, U, G, uh, Ford executive who was taking him on the tour looked at him and wisecracked at him. How are you going to get these workers, these machines, to pay union dues? <laughs> and uh, Ruther responded with, how are you going to get them to buy Fords? Very good. There are two sides to uh, these issues. Okay, Radio Labor, our world report. Coming up? Okay, coming up. We'll have to wait on that one. Um... What else did we have? Big Pharma. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, October 25th, 2019. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a new law to regulate the employment practices of multinational corporations moves forward at the United Nations. The labor movement has won a major victory as Qatar abandons its infamous kafala system. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and rapping. They took my dignity, my identity, my money, but not my accent. This is Radio Labor. The international labor movement is trying to get a global law to regulate the employment activities of transnational corporations. This is especially important because 94% of their workers are hidden away in complex global supply chains. Only 6% are employed directly by the corporations. Just recently, a committee of the UN's Human Rights Council considered a draft instrument which would get countries to implement binding regulations to control the behavior of multinational corporations. To find out more about the proposed instrument, I talked to Magbuli Sahan. Ms. Sahan is the director of the legal unit of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the organization which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress. I asked Ms. Sahan about the proposed instrument and what it would do. The instrument would put in place binding legislation on transnational companies that would ensure that their activities don't infringe on human and labor rights. At the moment, international law is not very well equipped to address cross-border activities of companies with respect to their human and labor rights obligations. That's because of the traditional approach of international treaty law, which puts obligations on states to hold human rights abusers accountable with respect to abuses within their own borders. But this approach is no longer corresponding to the realities of the global economy. In fact, the majority of trade is now tied to global supply chains, where we see decent work deficits all over. We had a 2016 report on supply chain where we the ITUC revealed that 94% of workers who are employed with the largest multinational companies are not directly employed, in fact, which facilitates their exploitation. 
And we see throughout global supply chains that workers work for low wages, are in precarious jobs, unsafe work environments, and often, in fact, in in forced labor. And this is also because companies are currently able to shield themselves from the responsibilities by acting, in fact, as de facto networks of national-level entities. So parent companies, even where they are directly or indirectly controlling this vast net of entities, are often immune to any consequences, even when it comes to their subsidiaries, let alone suppliers. Workers are also not able to seek remedy at the local level because the local legs of multinational companies are often undercapitalized. So even where a worker succeeds to obtain a judgment locally, it can be quite meaningless because of the undercapitalization. So effectively, this means that workers don't have access to their rights and that there is a situation of impunity um, because of the absence of an adequate legal framework that captures the way business uh, is operating today. So what we are expecting from binding instruments is that it closes these accountability gaps. For us, concretely, this has, has to mean that companies are required to take due diligence measures, including with regard to their supply chains, and that where there are human and labor rights abuses, that they are held liable for these. You said the proposed instrument regulating transnational corporations would be binding. How would that work? Who would police the instrument? The implementation would take place at two levels. So governments would have to transpose the instrument into their national legislation, and there would be a role for national courts. There is already a precedent for this. In fact, in France, the government adopted a law on a duty of care for its own multinational companies in 2017, and there are already three pending cases, two filed by uh, by trade unions. And in addition, we have called for a strong international monitoring mechanism. But this is, at the moment, the, the one of the weaker parts of the draft that is that is up for current um, debate. We called for a mechanism at the international level that would monitor state reports on the application of such a treaty at the national level, and that would also have the ability to hear individual complaints. A committee of the UN's Human Rights Council met last week to discuss the proposed instrument regulating transnational corporations. What happened? The intergovernmental group met for the fifth session last week in order to carry out substantive negotiations on a revised text. This revised text for a binding treaty follows the zero draft that was published last year. Um, so at the beginning of the process, there were, there were serious risks among especially developing countries and industrial countries. And last week, we've seen some serious progress on this, actually, because for the first time, we've seen that governments from the global north and south have actively participated in the negotiations. And the vast majority of governments have expressed their commitment to constructively engage in order to achieve the mandate of the working group, which is to come up with a binding treaty on transnational companies. We saw specifically a softening of the tone of the EU. In 2015, when the working group met for the first time, the EU representative left the room after making some polarizing remarks on the program of work and did not come back into the negotiations for the whole week. But this time around, we've seen a change of attitude. The EU has acknowledged that there was a need for to urgently strengthen prevention and mitigation of adverse human rights impacts that are related to business activity. 
there has really been more support for binding legislation in this area. And this was facilitated by the draft text, by the revised draft text that has been proposed by the chairmanship, which has facilitated the consensus building. It has taken into account some of the elements that were put forward by industrialized countries and the business community, while at the same time preserving and strengthening some of the core demands that, that we made as trade unions and that were also supported by civil society. Also, the fact that many countries at the national level are already debating legislation in this area has also helped to move and steer a bit the international discussions forward. There are now almost 20 industrialized countries, including the EU, that are debating binding legislation on transnational companies. So I would say that I am cautiously optimistic about about a turning of the tide. What's the next step? There is, there is scope to improve the draft text that was proposed. For example, we have made some proposals with, with regard to the enforcement mechanisms that I mentioned, but also with regard to trade and investment. But what we really need is that all governments are now coming on board, especially the EU should no longer delay its effective participation in the negotiations. The labor movement has forced Qatar to reform its anti-worker employment laws. Seamary Ainsborough reports. After years of global campaigning by the labor movement and other civil society groups, working conditions in Qatar are about to improve dramatically. Qatar is scheduled to hold the 2022 World Cup of football. The workers who have been constructing the facilities for the games and other workers, such as domestic help, have been laboring under extremely strict conditions known as Okay, Labor and Love Radio, a little uh, interruption there. Um, especially interested in Qatar. Oh, by the way, I was going to say hello to Solina. Hello, Solina. Um, hello to Vita and happy birthday to her. Um looking for some music um, okay let's get on with more labor news we'll come back to uh, radio labor big pharma CEO uh, this is a particularly scary one and in a sense, we should not be scared by it. We're talking about capitalism here. Big Pharma CEO, last July, Turing Pharmaceuticals CEO, Martin Shkreli, became a lightning rod for growing outrage over soaring prescription drug prices after he raised the price of a newly acquired drug from 1350 to seven fifty. Thirteen dollars and fifty cents to seven hundred and fifty dollars. But Shkreli, who earned the title the most hated man in America, is not the only one acquiring drugs currently on the market to raise their price and in turn rapidly drive up their stock price. 
This is capitalism, y'all. Okay? When you make something a commodity, such as pharmaceutical drugs, which translate into people's lives, when you make those things a commodity, they can be bought and sold. They can be presented as life-saving things and then sold, which means your life is up for grabs. If you can afford the drugs, you can continue living. If you can't, you die. How do these people sleep at night? J. Michael Pearson, the CEO of Valiant Pharmaceuticals, has enraged the Internet after saying at a recent interview with MSNBC that his company's responsibility is to its shareholders, not the customers who rely on his drugs to live. They're his drugs. See, they're a commodity, and he's, he's purchased them. My primary responsibility is to valiant shareholders. We can do anything we want to do. We will continue to make acquisitions. We will continue to move forward, Pearson said. He added, if products are sort of mispriced and there's an opportunity, we will act appropriately in terms of doing what I assume our shareholders would like us to do. So he's representing the shareholders, by all means. He's a capitalist. He's a manager. And people will die because of it. If products are sort of mispriced, what he means by that is if the drugs are underpriced, he can add to the price and make them more expensive. Already this year, according to several media outlets, Valiant has increased the price of 56 of the drugs in its portfolio, an average of 66%. Highlighted by their re recent acquisition, Zigrid, which they promptly raised 550%. Not only does this have the unfortunate side effect... <laughs> of placing the price of life-saving drugs out of reach for even moderately insured people. It has now begun to call into question the sustainability of this rapidly spreading business model. Valiant has acquired more than 100 drugs and seen their stock price raise more than 1,000%. 1,000%. Since Pearson was named CEO in 2008. Pearson started working with Valiant Pharmaceuticals as an outside consultant in 2007, took over as CEO the next year. Both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders' stance against the practice has placed Big Pharma under tremendous scrutiny. 
House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform is planning to issue a subpoena for information on recent drug price increases. Well, now, how's that? This is now, see, we're talking about nothing more or less than capitalism here. Capitalism. Okay? That drug, the commodization of the drug under capitalism means that people's lives depend on how much money they have. Now, is that how it's supposed to be, y'all? What are you going to do about it? What can we do about it? Well, we can take prescription drugs out of the hands of the capitalists. We can make it so they're not commodities. Ah, okay. Labor history in two minutes. Let's see. We do want to get back to radio labor. We played part one of radio labor. And we do want to get back to that. So that'll come on you know, pretty soon. Meanwhile, I want to play... Something by Nina Simone. And uh, can I get it here on my phone? Uh, this is the Labor and Love Show, and I want to talk to you about our... our credos. These are the things we believe at Labor and Love Radio. Um, start with number one, okay? Okay. One, one important one. I mean, I read an article today about, uh, by a writer, probably, you know, blaming my generation, the baby boomers were called, for all the things that are wrong uh, with America. And, they, you know, believe me, we, we have a lot of blame to go around. But what I've noticed is, this is simply another way to blame one group of workers for the problems, you know, of, of the world. In other words, it's our fault, right? 
Now the millennials are blaming the baby boomers, are blaming Generation X. You know, what can be done, right? <laughs> anyway, what can be done is to teach labor history to people. And here's what Utah Phillips said about that, credo number one. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories, damn it. No root, no fruit. about our second one? When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. Let's read that again. When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. Getting raped becomes a crime. This one about immigrants, and Mr. Trump has done a masterly job of dividing or trying to divide working people into groups, immigrants, native workers. Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the vast welfare people claim they get. The majority of them are normal people, a large majority of them, trying to live a better life. This whole wall deport the illegals bullshit is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor instead of realizing that the reason they're all poor is due to the vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage, wage stagnation. Is your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. You're poor because your boss doesn't pay enough money. Okay, it's simple. <laughs> people say, oh, wages, the pressure on wages. Wages are up. Wages are down. Wages are up 3%. Uh, if you're poor, it's because you're not getting paid enough. Okay, next one. So you're just not that into politics. I see people all the time, you hear people. 
You're just not that into politics. Well, your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. Hello? Time to wake up. Politics decide a big part of what goes on in your life. Okay, here's one for women. So let me see if I've got this right. I'm not allowed to get an abortion because I didn't realize I was pregnant till six weeks. I'm not allowed to get my tubes tied to prevent any more pregnancies because once again it has to be someone else's rules. Men's rules. By and large, old white men's rules. What I do with my body. Cut funding to Planned Parenthood so now I can no longer get the cheap birth control to prevent a pregnancy. Not all insurance covers birth control. Cut funding to CHIP, WIC, and food assistance, making it harder for single mothers to take care of the child they're forced to have. I think I've got it. Government can't tell you what guns you can own because that's violating your rights as an American citizen. But it's totally okay for them to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body because my rights aren't being violated or because my rights as a woman just aren't that important. See, anyone who doesn't have control over her own body is a slave. And it's just... And it's just about, not just about having the baby, okay, yeah, you're a slave because government can force you to have the baby. But you're also a slave for the next 18 years. And I'm not saying that it's not good to raise kids, but what if you don't want to? You're forced to. You're forced to take all that time out of your life and all those resources and all that money because a bunch of men got together in a room and decided that that wasn't your business. Pity the Nation by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars and thieves, whose sages are silent and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation, his breath is money, and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation, oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. 
My country, tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty. Okay. Here's Nina. Pirate Jenny. You people can watch while I'm scrubbing these floors and I'm scrubbing the floors while you're gawking. Maybe once you tip me and it makes you feel swell in this crummy southern town in this crummy old hotel but you'll never guess to who you're talking. No. You couldn't ever guess to who you're talking. Black Friday. 
the roads are ruined as packed with patriarchy. So let the way of women guide democracy. And from plunder and pollution and mother earth be free. Feminism ain't about women, but that's not who it is for. It's about shifting consciousness that we're bringing into war. So listen up. one lays it out for you. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Maybe a rock and roll addict dancing on the stage. Money have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you chief, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. It may be a state trooper, it might be a young Turk. Maybe some bigger TV network You may be rich or poor You may be blind or lame 
maybe living in another country under another name, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Maybe a construction worker working on a home. Might be living in a mansion. You might live in a dome. You may own guns and you may even own tanks. You may be somebody's landlord. You may even own banks. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side. Maybe working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair. It may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody.
Thoughts on Radio Labour. To their national legislation, and there would be a role for national courts. There is already a precedent for this. In fact, in France, the government adopted a law on a duty of care for its own multinational companies in 2017, and there are already three pending cases, two filed by uh, by trade unions. And in addition, we have called for a strong international monitoring mechanism. But this is, uh, at the moment, the the one of the weaker parts of the draft that is that is up for current um, debate. We called for a mechanism at the international level that would monitor state reports on the application of such a treaty at the national level, and that would also have the ability to hear individual complaints. A committee of the UN's Human Rights Council met last week to discuss the proposed instrument regulating transnational corporations. What happened? The intergovernmental group met for the fifth session last week in order to carry out substantive negotiations on a revised text. This revised text for a binding treaty follows the zero draft that was published last year. Um, so at the beginning of the process, there were, there were serious risks among especially developing countries and industrial countries. And last week, we've seen some serious progress on this, actually, because for the first time, we've seen that governments from the global north and south have actively participated in the negotiations. And the vast majority of governments have expressed their commitment to constructively engage in order to achieve the mandate of the working group, which is to come up with a binding treaty on transnational companies. We saw specifically a softening of the tone of the EU. In 2015, when the working group met for the first time, the EU representative left the room after making some polarizing remarks on the program of work and did not come back into the negotiations for the whole week. But this time around, we've seen a change of attitude. The EU has acknowledged that there was a need for to urgently strengthen prevention and mitigation of adverse human rights impacts that are related to business activity. There has really been more support for binding legislation in this area. And this was facilitated by the draft text, by the revised draft text that has been proposed by the chairmanship, which has facilitated the consensus building. It has taken into account some of the elements that were put forward by industrialized countries and the business community, while at the same time preserving and strengthening some of the core demands that that we made as trade unions and that were also supported by civil society. Also, the fact that many countries at the national level are already debating legislation in this area has also helped to move and steer a bit the international discussions forward. There are now almost 20 industrialized countries, including the EU, that are debating binding legislation on transnational companies. So I would say that I am cautiously optimistic about about the turning of the tide. What's the next step? There is there is scope to improve the draft text that was proposed. For example, we have made some proposals with, with regard to the enforcement mechanisms that I mentioned, but also with regard to trade and investment. But what we really need is that all governments are now coming on board, especially the EU should no longer delay its effective participation in the negotiations. The labor movement has forced Qatar to reform its anti-worker employment laws. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. 
After years of global campaigning by the labor movement and other civil society groups, working conditions in Qatar are about to improve dramatically. Qatar is scheduled to hold the 2022 World Cup of Football. The workers who have been constructing the facilities for the Games and other workers, such as domestic help, have been laboring under extremely strict conditions known as the kafala system. But now workers in the country will be able to change employers. Until now, they have been tied permanently to one employer. Visas allowing employees, including domestic workers, to leave the country when they want will be granted. And all employees, no matter what country they come from, are now eligible for a new evidence-based minimum wage law. The law is the first of its kind in the Middle East. The new laws will be submitted to the country's advisory council in November and come into effect on January 1, 2020. The campaign to win better working conditions in Qatar has been a special interest to the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the body which represents national union centers at the world level. Its work, in cooperation with the International Labour Organization, has been the major factor in Qatar's move to improved labour laws. Just a few years ago, it seemed that Qatar was determined to hold the Games without changing any of its labour laws. The changes now coming into effect can be seen as a major victory for the international labour movement. I'm C. Marie Ainsborough, reporting for Radio Labour. Now here is Labour Star correspondent Derek Blackadder with his report about union events around the world. Each day, Labour Star's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about workers and their unions from around the world in 31 languages. Here's a small sample of those stories. Our top story sections included links to coverage of Chile, where unions have joined in huge protests over neoliberal government social policies, including the workers at the world's largest copper mine who took Tuesday off in solidarity with the protesters, a national bank workers' strike in India, and the arrest without charge of a union leader in Kazakhstan. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. We carried stories about wage strikes by German flight attendants, Spanish tourism workers, customs inspectors in Mali, solid waste collection workers on Guadeloupe, 6,000 Congolese teachers, and Colombian footballers. Strikes against rollbacks were being mounted by Tunisian media workers who are faced with pension cuts, while the Lebanese general strike over increased consumption taxes continued, and mobile phone network workers in the same country walked out over wage cuts. Walkouts caused by ongoing government austerity policies were underway this week in Chad, which saw the start of an unlimited strike by municipal workers, and once again in France, where rail workers and medical laboratory staff held warning strikes over pension cuts. Solidarity strikes were organized by Portuguese teachers after a series of violent attacks in their workplaces. Attacks on basic labor rights provoked responses from home-based workers, most of them women, in Pakistan who are denied the right to organize, and in Mexico, municipal workers are picketing after being told that their employer has no money to pay them the wages owed and that they should retire so cheaper labor can replace them. Our Working Women pages, now available in eight languages, included stories about a recent study of the wave of room attendance strikes at hotels across France, Canada, Spain, and South Africa, a similar global push for wage equality and safe workplaces by women footballers, and union celebration of Women's Day in Iceland, which marks the National Women's Strike of 1975. 
The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards Magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the call by airline pilot unions for strict regulations governing drone operations, attacks on journalists during protests in Spain, and how and why Irish transport workers prepare for Halloween. Currently, Labor Start is running two online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here's Manuela Astudillo with My Accent. Is it my accent? Because my hazel eyes and white thick thighs don't tell the story that my appearance hides. Is it my accent? Or is it the dust on my face? What dust, you ask? The one that seeped through my skin when I tried to rush in, all tied in the back of an illegal coyote car for 40 days with no water, no food, no air, and no way out. And just when I thought I had gotten somewhere, yes, I tell you somewhere because as a fact, I was in the middle of nowhere. I stepped out of that dark, dirty hole, and they took advantage. They took it all. They took my dignity, my identity, my money, but not my accent. And with this accent, I travel a journey from nowhere to somewhere to find the future that was stolen from my ancestors by the government of my new country. And even though that in this country, some of you still laugh at me, because instead of saying party, I end up saying patty, I have an accent and I recognize it. But here my people don't want their accents. They hide their culture and erase their past. They change their color to blind their eyes. But I have an accent. And even though that I can change my long curly brown hair to blonde and change the color of my eyes to green, blue, brown, pink, or red. I don't. No, I won't. And so I'll fight to protect the roots of my race through night and through day because I have an accent. My Accent was produced by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts on our website at www.radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, that was Radio Labor. <clears throat> and again, I apologize. Um, I'm having some pretty unique problems uh, with my technology. I, to make a long story short, I downloaded the latest uh, OX org operating system. And... Uh, I was unable to transfer my files. So um, I was unable to transfer them over. So I'm sort of. All right. Um, let's see what we got here. I want to play Fred Glass's chapter five of. Uh, 
Golden Land's Working Hands is a history of the California labor movement. In the working out of a okay. Chapter 5, the Great Depression. It is true that the toes of some people are being stepped on and are going to be stepped on. But these toes belong to the comparative few who seek to retain or to gain position or riches or both by some short cut that is harmful to the greater good. When President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs several important pieces of legislation in the 1930s, he creates the laws he calls the New Deal, the National Recovery Act, National Labor Relations Act, the Social Security Act, and the Fair Labor Standards Act. The New Deal is a response to the severe conditions of the Great Depression, when more than 25% of the workforce is unemployed, and it seems to many as if capitalism is collapsing. Once I built a railroad, Made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? These laws established for the first time the legitimacy of unions and workers' rights nationally and create minimum standards for employment such as the 40-hour week and restrictions on child labor. This is what today we call the social safety net. Steve's unemployment check is not as big as the wage he used to get, but it goes a long way toward buying groceries and paying rent. It helps keep his family going while the employment office helps Steve find a job. Other New Deal programs put people to work building roads, parks, national forests, government buildings, and even making art in public spaces. Socialists and communists had said for years that the country needed laws and programs like these, but until the Depression, such ideas were considered too radical. Now, novelist Upton Sinclair sees an opportunity to bring these notions into the mainstream. He drops his longtime Socialist Party affiliation. The California Democratic Party nominates him its candidate for governor. His 1934 campaign calls for production for use and turning over idle factories and land to working people. And they will be able to produce great quantities of wealth and to make comfort and plenty for themselves. We think that this is the true American plan. We say that it represents California's share of the New Deal. Sinclair wins widespread labor support, but loses the election when Hollywood movie studios force all the theaters in California to show fake newsreels supposedly showing tramps flocking into the state in expectation of a Sinclair victory. Presented as documentary films, these are actually entirely scripted and acted, including this interview. I'm going to vote for Upton St. Clair. Will you tell us why? Upton St. Clair is the author of the Russian government, and it worked out very well there, and I think it should do here. The New Deal is also responding to the growing number of demonstrations and strikes by working people often organized by left-wing groups. Some of these events, by their size and militancy, seem to verge on revolution. 
After 15 years of the open shop on the San Francisco waterfront, dock workers are sick of shape-ups, of bribing bosses to get work, and of making 75 cents an hour. When a group of rank-and-file longshoremen radical activists start up a newsletter agitating for change, they find a receptive audience. Section 7A of the National Recovery Act allows workers to join unions. Thousands of West Coast longshoremen stream into the International Longshoremen's Association, or ILA. They demand a union-run hiring hall, a 25-cent-per-hour raise, and a 30-hour week so that work could be shared equally. When the employers reject these ideas, 12,000 longshoremen strike the West Coast on May 9, 1934. The public is generally sympathetic. Many students come out to demonstrate their support. Sailors and other maritime workers join the strike. They want their own changes to deal with working 14 to 16 hour days, rotten food, and living quarters on ships Andy Furioseth describes as bigger than a coffin, but smaller than a grave. They also want an end to hiring through employer-run think halls. All the unions agree no one returns to work until everyone gets what they need. With 40,000 on strike, this is the largest maritime job action in U.S. history. An immigrant Australian longshoreman named Harry Bridges emerges from the ranks as head of the strike committee. Articulate, a brilliant strategist, Harry insists any settlement must be voted on by all members of the union. National ILA President Joe Ryan flies out from the east. Conservative and corrupt, Ryan feels more comfortable with the bosses than with these new militant West Coast unionists. He signs two agreements with employers. Neither contains any of the strikers' demands. Ryan attempts to explain at a meeting of thousands of San Francisco longshoremen. Unaccustomed to democratic unionism, he is startled when they overwhelmingly reject his settlements. Rank-and-file longshoreman Pirate Larson leaps on stage. This guy's a fink, and he's trying to make finks out of us. Let's throw him out. As he leaves, Ryan warns, Bridges does not want this strike settled. My firm belief is that he is acting for the communists. The employers open the ports with a massive show of force. They are determined to crush the maritime workers' strike. The bosses hire a thousand strike breakers in San Francisco alone, including hundreds of black workers who are barred from the union. This tactic is neutralized when the union, breaking with its racist past, approaches African-American longshoremen and asks them to join the union and the strike. Many do. But on July 5th, other weapons are turned on the strikers. One witness reports, Struggling knots of longshoremen, closely pressed by officers mounted and on foot, swarmed everywhere. The air was filled with blinding gas, the howl of the sirens, the low boom of the gas guns, the crack of pistol fire the whine of the bullets, the shouts and curses of sweating men. Everywhere was a rhythmical waving of arms, like trees in the wind, swinging clubs, swinging fists, hurling rocks, hurling bombs. As the police moved from one group to the next, men lay bloody, unconscious, or in convulsions, in the gutters, on the sidewalks, in the streets. Around on Madison Street, a plainclothes man dismounted from a radio car, waved his shotgun nervously at the shouting pickets who scattered. I saw nothing thrown at him. Suddenly, he fired up and down the street, and two men fell in a pool of gore, one evidently dead, the other half attempting to rise, but weakening fast. 
Longshoreman Howard Sperry is dead. A block away, so is cook Nick Bordeaux, who is volunteering in the strike kitchen. Not one smile in the endless blocks of marching men. Crowds on the sidewalk, for the most part, stood with heads erect and hats removed. Others watched the procession with fear and alarm. Here and there, well-dressed businessmen from Montgomery Street stood amazed and impressed, but with their hats still on their heads. Sharp voices shut out of the line of march. Take off your hat. The tone of voice was extraordinary. The reaction was immediate. With quick, nervous gestures, the businessmen obeyed. As the last marcher broke ranks, the certainty of a general strike, which up to this time had appeared to many to be a visionary dream of a small group of the most radical workers, became for the first time a practical and realizable objective. Against the advice of San Francisco Labor Council officers Edward Vandeleur and Mike Casey, 64 unions vote to strike. Seeing the writing on the wall, even the conservative council officers vote for a general strike. And then, strikers run the city. Workplaces are shut tight. With the exception of emergency deliveries allowed by the general strike leadership, virtually no work takes place. Laboring men appeared on the streets in their Sunday clothes, shiny celluloid union buttons glistening on every lapel. Common social barriers were swept away in the spirit of the occasion. Strangers addressed each other warmly as friends. Then it was the employer's turn to counterattack. City government and the media whip up public hysteria. An army of communists is marching on San Francisco. The strikers are going to starve the city into submission. In this atmosphere, hundreds are arrested. and so-called radical hangouts are wrecked in a massive effort to eliminate the imaginary alien red menace. After four days, Labor Council conservatives, over the angry objections of the maritime unions, call off the general strike. To you, Mr. Vandalore, as president of the San Francisco Labor Council and chairman of the General Strike Committee, and to your associates, I offer my congratulations upon your decision and the part it has played in bringing to an end the general strike in San Francisco. The inconclusive use of their biggest weapon convinces most longshoremen and many seamen the time has come to compromise. Longshoremen vote to submit all issues to federal arbitration and to end the strike. The sailors are unhappy but know they now have no choice but to wait for arbitration too. But before going back, old Andrew Furioseth has the last word. He has his members build a bonfire to burn their think books. At work, the bosses awaken to a different world. Workers refuse to labor alongside strike breakers. 
unsafe working conditions and speed up are rejected. The workers enforce their own new rules with direct action. When problems arise, they vote and strike quickly on dock after dock and ship after ship. Shape up and fin call are gone, replaced by union run hiring halls. Workers govern their organizations through rank and file union democracy. Sailors Union leader Harry Lundeberg and longshoreman Harry Bridges bring together a powerful federation of maritime unions. The owners are furious, but maritime workers have learned how to take care of themselves. The fear is gone. Industrial unionism is established on the West Coast, and it's radical. My land I'll defend with my life if it be, cause my pastures of plenty must always be free. The largest cotton fields in the world can be found at this time in the San Joaquin Valley. The people who pick the cotton are expected to fill 100 pound bags daily for 60 cents each. Even with children picking, families cannot live on this. The California AFL is officially disinterested in farm labor. As Labor Federation leader Paul Scharenberg puts it, Only fanatics are willing to live in shacks or tents and get their heads broken in the interests of migratory workers. In this vacuum, the Cannery and Agricultural Workers Industrial Union, led by communists, organizes the pickers. In 1933, 18,000 cotton workers on dozens of ranches shocked the growers by striking. Mass picket lines spread quickly thanks to the family and social networks of Mexican-American farm workers who had begun organizing unions a few years earlier in cotton and other crops. Here, striking berry pickers in El Monte, a Los Angeles suburb, ask other workers to leave the fields and join the strike. The cards are stacked against the workers. When growers fire into an unarmed union crowd in Pixley, killing two strikers, a friendly judge acquits them of murder charges. On the other hand, union leaders Pat Chambers and Carolyn Decker are sentenced to years in prison under the Criminal Syndicalism Act simply for organizing the strikes. Crushed between grower violence and hostile forces of law and order, the CAWIU goes under in 1935. But in leading tens of thousands of workers in strikes, it demonstrates the potential for farm labor organizing. It enhances the reputation of the Communist Party among some of the poorest groups of California workers. It also forces the growers to raise wages throughout the state. Late in 1934, the American Federation of Labor meets in San Francisco. We insist, we propose that the hours of work in America shall be reduced to the point where the slack of unemployment shall be taken up. And for that reason, we stand unflinchingly for the application of the six-hour day and the five-day week in industry.
Despite the AFL leader's radical-sounding speech, neither he nor a majority of AFL unions have responded to the new mood for organizing among working people. A few unions do commit themselves to organizing the unorganized. When they form the Committee for Industrial Organization, the CIO, a split develops. Most AFL unions continue to organize skilled craft workers, as they have for decades. This leaves out most women, immigrants, and workers of color who are segregated into less skilled jobs. They had written into, the, into their bylaws in many of the unions a clause excluding uh, uh, non-Caucasians, machinists, the uh, electrical workers, the plumbers, the carpenters. Uh, uh, until the CIO came into being, why the unions, in the main, were segregated. The CIO unions take a different approach. They want to organize everyone. This orientation makes the CIO a civil rights movement, too. Rose Pesota organizes Latina garment workers in Los Angeles for the Ladies' Garment Workers Union. Luisa Moreno, organizer of the Southern California Cannery Workers, rises to become a vice president of the National CIO Cannery Workers Union. In 1936, Green and the more conservative unions, threatened by the CIO's militancy, throw 10 CIO unions out of the AFL. West Coast Maritime unions leave the AFL and join the CIO. The direct action style of the sailors and longshoremen fits well within the new organization. So does the CIO's emphasis on democratic, member-run union meetings. Labor's political strength grows too. Union grassroots volunteers and fundraising puts Colbert Olson into the governor's office in 1938. Fulfilling a campaign promise, he frees Tom Mooney from prison after 23 long years. Mooney's release is symbolic. Throughout California and the nation, millions of people join unions. An entire generation of workers learns from experience that they create their own power. Their militancy pressures politicians into signing protective labor laws. Labor led by the CIO, is finally on the march. Golden Land's working hands there, the uh, chapter on the uh, Depression and the emergence of a strong labor movement, um, the CIO, farm worker organizing. Golden Land's Working Hands is available from the California Federation of Teachers, CFT.org. Give them a call if you'd like a copy. So we're down to uh, the last few minutes here. And uh, let's see what we got. We want to get on. Uh, the Facebook page for the Labor Beat. On Labor and Love Radio, you can uh, find... The stories that I highlight here on this show, 
One of those, for example, was the drug problem, the drug companies, uh, the fact that drugs are a commodity. Stories that I find interesting to uh, people interested in the labor movement. Slaves' values exceeded the value of railroads and factories. Slavery-based cotton, sugar, tobacco, etc. The internet of its time. This is where you would go if you were in the north, perhaps, and you got some money. You would, and you wanted to make money. You would invest in southern cotton and southern agriculture, which was slave-driven. The name of the book is Slavery's Capitalism by Sven Beckert and Seth Rockman. 19th century Americans had little difficulty grasping slavery's capitalism. Advocates of national economic development presumed the reciprocal relationship of the slaveholding and non-slaveholding states. On the White Mountains of New Hampshire, we find the sugar of Louisiana, and in the plains beyond the Mississippi, the cotton cloths of Rhode Island are domesticated, explained the famed editor Hezekiah Niles in 1827. Abolitionists such as William Lloyd Garrison recognize the North as a partner in iniquity. The labor beat. Wonder where the money went? This one is on commondreams.org. We have spent $32 million per hour on war since 2001. But you didn't know that. What are the costs since... Put another way, let's see this last paragraph. $5.6 trillion since 2001 when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. Americans spend $32 million per hour. Put another way, every American taxpayer has spent $24,000 on the wars. And they say there's not enough money for domestic programs. Of course, we don't believe that anyway. There's the proof. Top class actions. Migrant farmers get a $5 million settlement in unpaid wages. That's a big one. A lawsuit affecting migrant farmers has reached a settlement following a judge's approval of a $5 million proposal. The underpaid wages lawsuit affects more than 6,000 seasonal workers who provided services to the Garawan Farming and Country Company Incorporated. Each year, Garwan hires seasonal workers to pick the fruit on its farms. According to the underpaid wages lawsuit, the workers were paid on a piece rate basis. 
workers were paid based on the amount of fruit they picked and not a specific wage. Golden opportunity for employers to exploit. Labor beat. The invention of capitalism, how self-sufficient peasantry was whipped into industrial wage slaves. At Film for Action, filmsforaction.org. Statement by Arthur Young. This is the connection between capitalism and poverty. Everyone but an idiot knows that the lower wages must, lower classes must be kept poor or they will never be industrious. Okay, it's about time for us to get going. Labor and Love Show. Thanks for tuning in. Um, call out to everybody. Solina. Sylvia. All you people there know who you are. One person got got a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, you're on the menu. And remember, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Labor and Love will return next week with more labor news, opinion, insight, history, etc. Goodbye and good work. Have a good week. Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear, too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers. California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP. 180 Prominent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834.
podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Mutinyradio.fm. Why not make a donation? Mutinyradio.fm. Streaming live the station. Mutinyradio.fm. District of the Mission. Mutinyradio.fm. Mutinyradio.fm. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco. MutinyRadio.fm. Hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! Gold Cadillac with the white material. And, and I started to do some thinking. And I'm on the and I'm having a really, really good time. Black, black, Just black. Saturday, noon to two. I'm the freeway. Good. I am I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2020 coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. But you can apply now through November 30th. 50 shows in seven days, over 50 comics from all around the U.S., and you could be one of them. Go to the Mutiny Radio website, www.mutinyradio.fm. Click the Apply button. Pay that 20 bucks. Donate to Mutiny Radio and apply with your five-minute video to the Mutiny Radio 5th Annual Comedy Festival coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. Submissions close November 30th. Get those submissions in now. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? 
Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 499. Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at Subliminal SF.myshopify.com That's Subliminal SF myshopify.com and experience subliminal SF hey you 
filmmaker in the San Francisco comedy scene. Maybe you want time to do jokes. Well, this is... 